You're listening to Purple 3 Cap, your place for 100% biased, 100% Minnesotan discussion about our purple. My name is Carl Bates, joined by Quinn Jurgens. Well, it's been a really long month, Purple Nation. Four losses in a row, but finally, the bleeding has stopped by a very solid win last week at home against the Arizona Cardinals. Quinn and I will break down the game, and we'll also spend a good chunk of time talking about the Turkey Day matchup against the Detroit Lions as the battle for the NFC North rages on. Welcome back, Purple Nation. You're listening to Purple 3 Cap, your place for 100% bias, 100% Minnesotan discussion about our purple. My name is Carl Bates, and joined as always by Quinn Jurgens. Hello, hello, hello. How is everybody in Purple Nation? Yeah, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. We're uh, very lucky this year that we actually get to face off on Thanksgiving against our our peak rivals this year. Even more so, I guess, than the Packers, the Detroit Lions, in a game uh, at Ford Field, which takes place tomorrow morning at eleven thirty kickoff, which should be exciting. Um, I think we'll we have a lot to say about that game. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll get we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. But first, we have to talk about a W. The Schneid is over. We are back in the win column after over a month out of it, and how good does that feel? I tell you, that's something to be thankful for. Yeah, it feels really, really good. <laughs> uh, that was a long month, wouldn't you say? Oh, I would absolutely say that. When you lose to the Eagles, that's one thing. They're a good team you lose on the road. When you lose to the Bears, it's thinking, okay, we always pay, play like garbage in Soldier Field. Then get to the point where you're losing to the Lions and the Redskins, and you start seeing that 5-0 and become a 5-4. and You start thinking, what the heck happened? Yeah, and it's interesting to kind of look back at, at those four games because in the midst of them, it felt like the world was ending. Uh, we suddenly have a garbage football team. We're not going to make the playoffs, etc. But you look back at those four losses: the Eagles game, uh, bad loss. But you know, if you remember very early on in that game, we had you know created some turnovers, and it certainly could have been a different outcome. The Bears game, you can't, definitely our worst. You can't loss. get around worst that. game of the season. Yeah. I mean, that has to be one of the worst performances I've seen by in years. the Vikings. Yeah, it just just horrible. So since Donovan that, McNabb. That's, yeah, since uh, since uh, Josh Freeman. Ouch! Too soon. <laughs> yeah, so th- that very bad loss. Uh, Detroit, we should have won. Blair Walsh, and we we we, we, the we Redskins, could have we could have won we could that have game. won that Redskins game, but they outplayed they us. Did. And Washington is looking like a very good team. They just demolished the Green Bay Packers on Sunday night. So. Uh, that that wasn't a horrible, horrible loss, but it's still a game that we had well in hand before. Well, Arizona last weekend, and Arizona, as you know, is a very good football team. A little bit down this year, um, but I don't think we should take that much away from them. And uh, luckily, playing at home for the first time, the doors or the gates, gates are closed. 
Um, so maybe that helped out Kai Forbath a little bit in his first game. You know, no weird wind swirling around or anything like that. Um, but uh, I, I think one of the big takeaways from this game, Quinn, was just a really abysmal performance by the, the refereeing crew. Yeah, and my thing is if I'm somebody like us doing a 100% biased Arizona podcast, I would say the exact same thing because they weren't bad for the Vikings or bad for the Cardinals. They were just objectively bad for the entire sport of football. You have a drive with three personal foul calls on the Cardinals, and only one of them is a bona fide late hit. And then you have two obvious touchdowns that we needed to use challenges on, as well as a host of other penalties that easily could not have been called. Luckily, it didn't determine the outcome of the game, but boy, it easily could have. So which mm. do you think uh, was the worst personal foul call the, um, from, the, from, the, from the referees? The hit on Sam Bradford when he was split out wide in the Wildcat, or the hit by Tom Johnson at the end of the game? against Carson Palmer. Ooh, that's tough to say. I'd I'd say the worst one is the hit on Sam Bradford, just because, granted, they could have not called that Tom Johnson call, but by the numbers, if you pick up a quarterback and throw him to the turf, technically, in the most technical manner, that is a personal foul. And when the quarterback is split out wide, he is supposed to be treated like a wide receiver. And once the linemen start moving downfield, that's a run play. So he's not a defenseless receiver. He's a blocker. So I also think Sam Bradford did a bit to sell that fall. So I'm I'm going to go with the Sam Bradford. Well, absolutely. It looked, it looked like he was... Uh... He was playing a little bit of a different sport out there. It looked like he was playing football. I was going to uh, say a, in the NBA. It was a straight-up soccer flop. Oh, we, it could be an NBA flop, too. He definitely did sell it. It really he looked like he, he got a little bit of a little nice, soft shove on him, and he, he went flying like a bag of bricks. And I think that uh, that Tom Johnson call might have been a bit of a makeup call, if you ask me. But I just I just can't get over those two Vikings touchdowns early on where— you get Adam Thielen with a great catch in the corner of the end zone. You get Matt Asiata going right up the middle. They were probably took 30 seconds to overturn. And part of the reason that that frustrates me so much is because Adam Thielen deserves to hear Prince's let's go crazy the second he comes down with that ball. He doesn't need to wait and hear this play is under review he needs to hear let's go crazy man how good was that catch oh my god that guy coming out of minnesota state wasn't even an unsigned free agent technically a guy who just went to a tryout day makes the team makes a name on special teams and boom he's starting what's going on now uh, I brought the wildcat a couple moments ago, so let's let's revisit that a little bit. We we use that set a number of times in the game, and I think really, I mean, I think they, except for maybe one play, they all resulted in not only positive yardage, but uh, you know, five, six, seven right, yard chunks. Right. 
And um, of course, the best play was the uh, was McKinnon taking the snap, mm-hmm. tossing it over to Patterson. Yep, giving it over to Brad. Uh, no, it was it to Bradford. To Bradford, who then who did he even throw it to? I can't even remember. He it threw it to Thielen. Yeah. Oh. That was fun. And that would have been an easy touchdown had it not been for that hack of a pass interference call. And that's not even one that you can deny. That was, yep. it, it was a tackle. Even the defensive back just knew, yeah, you got me. But that play, I love that play call. I don't think I've ever seen anything as creative from a Vikings offensive coordinator as that play call. Which is interesting. I mean, I don't know. I Shermer, with his, you know, his previous gigs, he seemed... Just, I don't know. You, you looked, I, I guess I didn't watch his offense week in and week out, but when you're comparing him and Norv Turner, you think, oh, Nur- Norv, you know, offensive guru, much more interesting. And Pat Shermer's he's going to run a more boring offense, but I don't think that's been the case at all. I've, I've been very impressed. I think part of it was, uh, part of the reason you didn't see it was because he was in Philly last year. And when Chip Kelly's coaching a team, he is the dominating factor on the offensive side, and he's not going to let anybody else into his clubhouse. And was he the head coach in Cleveland? Cleveland. Yeah, in yeah. Cleveland. <laughs> and that's just where careers typically go to die. So, yeah. Should we kind of get on to what we saw uh, special teams-wise to start off with? And I'd like to say, first of all, how great is it to have Marcus Sherrill's back? Fa- it's fabulous to have Sherrill's back. I it's it's been really been interesting to spend a little bit of time without Cheryl's because that's when you really notice how good he's been for this team and you notice that immediately on the first punt return uh, he, he was able to to final in great vision and and put together a very good return which set us up for that first touchdown I mean that was on him yeah and it's those little things that you never notice until like you said they're not there because Stefan Diggs incredibly athletic, great vision as a wide receiver, but he's just not a pro punt returner. He's somebody that they put back there when they don't have anybody else. But Marcus Sherrills knows exactly what to do when he catches a ball. And granted that fumble in Philadelphia is the exception that proves the rule. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's on both sides of special teams. I mean, he's fabulous on coverage as well, especially on Gunner playing the gunner position on punts. Um, so great to have Cheryl's back. Um, do you want to jump ahead? Should we talk about Cordell Patterson's let's, touchdown return? Why not? Let's do it. So I would like to take this point and uh, use my double down right here, right now, and say everyone over the last two years, myself included, who said Cordell Patterson was a bust, I'm doubling down and saying, no, he was not. He was worth that first-round pick. There may have been players that could have contributed better, but that 2013 draft was devoid of talent. And he is pure talent, and he has done a lot for this 2016 team. A lot of those little things that had they not been there, you wouldn't notice them. How many punts have been kicked deep by Jeff Locke that have not been returned because Cordero Patterson gets there in a flash? Oh, yeah, I I think, I mean, the holding call, he drew a holding call on Arizona on one of those punts, which was was a huge play. And 
throw a little stat at you, Quinn. That was Let's hear it. that Let's touchdown hear it. return was Cordell Patterson's fourth okay. uh, of over a hundred yards in his career, and he is now the first player in NFL history in his only his fourth year as a pro to have four hundred plus yard touchdowns in his career. Wow. Devin Hester hasn't done that. Um, you know, any, any all all the Pro Bowlers in history that none of them have done not that. Deion Sanders, not Deion Sanders. Mm. So, uh, man, that's that's impressive. That is, that is. And I I remember thinking to myself this year, is he even going to be on this team this year? Do we want him on this team this year? But I tell you right now, I want him on this roster in 2017 because he is so fast and so athletic that even though he lacks a lot of those mechanics, he can force the defense to alter their scheme just a little bit. And sometimes just that little bit can make a world of difference or create an extra first down that that other team needs to um, get to get in the end zone. And I'd also like to say, on that kick return, who made the block that sealed the left side of that gap that he ran through? Who did that, Carl? Who was it? Who was it? It was Rhett Ellison. That's right. My man. Like I said a couple weeks ago, any problem can be solved by number 85, Red Ellison. We'll talk about Red in just one moment, but I also have to say that it hasn't seemed like it this year. It seems like there's been um, a ton of kicks that Patterson has been letting run through the back of the end zone, taking a knee in the end zone, or even returning, and it seems like we're he's not even getting back to the 25, but... Um, I know at least coming into this week, and I'm sure with that 100-yard return, we're definitely, but we're, we have the best starting position off of kickoffs in, in the NFL. And it doesn't feel that way, but we do because of Cordell Patterson um, and, and the blocking that he receives upfield. Yeah, yeah. And it just kind of boils back to the old adage of you got three aspects of a game, an offense, a defense, and a special teams you got to win two of those to be able to win the game. And if you can get a solid performance on special teams, which is something that when you're watching the game, you really don't think about that much. But if you can get a 50-yard punt rather than a 40-yard punt, if you can start on the 32 rather than the 25, it'll make a world of difference. Okay, we're, we're, we're talking about special teams. We've already started talking about the second half. We'll just keep talking about special teams. You mentioned punts. How about that 72-yard boomer? (laughs) You can talk all you want about anything that happened for that Arizona Cardinals team, but I think that was the worst, most boneheaded play of the game that they had because that's just football 101. You fair catch that right away. You know, you're on about the 25 it's one thing if you're on, say, the 10 or the 15 to let it go past you, but you're on the 25. You don't want to chance that, especially when you're down. And that just made the Vikings' defense job that much easier. Well, and a big player who made that play, a player that we've uh, taken a couple shots at throughout this season, and a player I don't actually remember seeing actually playing that position at all, throughout the year but it's Charles Johnson yeah he was gunning that play and he was barreling down on on Josh Brown he was and Charles Johnson does have some decent speed and that's not something you talk about a whole lot 
usually you hear size with Charles Johnson, but he's got some run to him. And the last major component of special teams that we haven't talked about, and it's a component that we spent a lot of time talking about throughout the season, that is, of course, the kicking game. And we have a new kicker in town. Kai Forbath has taken over from Blair Walsh, RIP. And what do you think about Kai's performance? Well, so he is perfect on field goals. That's me knocking on wood right there. And um, he, and I say only in the most sensible of manners because nearly every kicker missed an extra point on Sunday. He missed one extra point. It was blocked. Yeah, it was not his fault. But it would have gone in based on the trajectory that we were seeing. Granted, we missed an extra point, but it would have gone in. So I I can't get mad at Kai quite yet. He's still got trust left in the bank. Yeah, I mean, I, I was certainly happy with his performance. I mean, granted, it's not just the Vikings who have been having this problem, but you just you can't afford if you're a playoff team you can't afford to miss extra points so hopefully um the, the blocking will get better Kyle will continue to kick well and we won't have that problem moving forward with Kai you're not going to see us kick long field goals so you you won't see any Blair Walsh 50 plus yarders nope. anymore no nope. uh, we'll have to move the ball even further than that but you know what that's okay the Vikings can get away with not kicking some of those long field goals because their defense is good enough, our special team unit is good enough that uh, we can play the field position game and and come ahead. And you kind of did see that when it would have been about a 54, 55-yard field goal. It was fourth and three, and we went for it. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's odd because um, past years we would have kicked that without even a second thought. Right. I I I was okay. I was okay with it. I mean, there's also, you know, the, the opportunity to try to pin them inside the 10. But at that point in time, I, I thought our offense was playing well enough and moving the ball where uh, I was okay with them taking that shot. I really would have rather seen them punt. And I know hindsight hindsight is twenty twenty, but I would have preferred to see a punt nearly any every time there. Well, we definitely have a lot more to talk about. Definitely, we have a lot to cover on the defensive side of the ball, and we'll talk a little bit more on offense uh, coming up quickly after the break. But first, uh, we have a, a new segment, something that we've we've talked a little bit about throughout the show, um, and, and feel we like just we just like to make it official. Absolutely. So, coming up in just a moment, we're gonna we're gonna break down the top five enemies of the show. All right, and we're back with the show's top five enemies. And if I'm not mistaken, we've probably mentioned each of these at one point or another throughout the season. So, with no further ado, number five, Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, moving in so many pointless rules that take away from the game then complaining about how ratings are down roger stop interfering let football be played sure 
worry about concussions. That's one thing. That's players' health. But stop moving the extra point back. Stop moving kickoffs around. Let those things happen. Let the game be played and be a commissioner for the league and stop selling out for stupid things like the color rush. Carl, who's number four? Uh, with number four, it's it's a little bit broad, um, but it's it's the Green Bay Packers organization as a whole. Uh, you know, America's you know favorite publicly owned franchise. Um, of course, that's some bull malarkey right there. Yeah, and then of course there's uh, America's most overrated head coach, Mike McCarthy, and America's whiniest fans. Yeah, yeah. You know, you think about anybody our age, for the record, we're both 23. If you were born after 1992, you have never seen the Green Bay Packers play without a Hall of Fame quarterback, or two Hall of Fame quarterbacks, for that matter, for a few years. You have no right to complain about anything, Green Bay fans. Except all their problems are just because of injuries. Um, yeah. Just yeah. injuries. I, it's amazing. I mean, you just can't win with injuries. And Ted Thompson is the best builder of a team in sports history. So there you have it. Number four is the Packers. Who do you have at number three, Quinn? Number three is potentially the worst bandwagon in the last decade. And that is the Seattle Seahawks 12th man. Go in to Seattle and start asking people, hey, Do you know the name Matt Hasselbeck? Does the name Sean Alexander mean anything to you? Yeah, it does. How about Cortez Kennedy? Any of those guys? Steve Largent? No, no, no. Well, who's part of the Legion of Boom? And they'd tell you right away. But if you ask them anything pre-2010, they'd be clueless. And they are just so absolutely arrogant about everything. Twelfth man. We changed the game. We're part of the team. Yeah, sure you are. Nobody cares. Carl, who is number two? Number two goes out to uh, somebody a little bit, well, I guess formally closer to home. Number two goes out to Blair Walsh. Uh, we've we spent uh, hours on the show complaining about Blair Walsh. Hopefully we don't have to get to complain about him anymore after this moment. Um, and he cost us a deep playoff run last year, so we'll... Blair, you're the number two enemy. It it hurts. It, it hurts because he had such a promising start, his rookie season, and it was just downhill from there. And the number one enemy of the show is the 2009 New Orleans Saints defense and Greg Williams costing us the big one, the Super Bowl. What do you think about that, Carl? Man... That has to be my least favorite football team of all time. Uh, I mean, no disrespect to the city of New Orleans, um, but the the whole narrative of, uh, you know, we're coming back from Katrina, so, you know, because of that, th- this team is, you know, destined for great things and it's great for the city, um, etc. Just made me sick, especially with how unethical that team was. Right, I mean, they were they were not a good role model for that city, um, for the children of that city, um, and and of course it comes down a lot to the defense. Though Sean Payton, hmm, 
remember, he got suspended for an entire year because of this. And Greg Williams got suspended too. And you can't blame Drew Brees or anything for that, but he's still playing. He's still doing well. And what, what really, really hurts is after that game, that set the Vikings back a couple years because we lost a couple good players, good young players. Cedric Griffin got hurt in that game, never really played again. Sidney Rice never played well again in his career after that game, and Brett Favre's career was effectively over. They cost us a big one by taking cheap shot after cheap shot after cheap shot. And the worst part was, they did it to Kurt Warner the game before, and they did it to Peyton Manning the game after, and the NFL just let it happen because they were winning for a city. They had the narrative, and nobody cares about the Minnesota Vikings. It's a damn shame. So yeah, there you have it. That That is definitely the, the number one enemy of the show. So that is our, our top five. Uh, so you'll have a little bit of a something to reference uh, as we move forward. So thanks for tuning into that segment. Coming up, we talk about uh, the defense, the offense. Uh, not the special teams anymore as we, we conclude our wrap-up talking about a win against the Arizona Cardinals. Now it's time for Quinn and I to break down the second half and, and talk a little bit more about uh, the defensive performance. Do a little bit of comparing, contrasting, a little bit of a tale of two halves there. But before we get to that, a little bit more to talk about on offense. Uh, one of the big uh, issues of the first half that we did come away with a lead is there There was a big disparity in time of possession. Uh, there was a lot of time on the offensive side of the ball for Arizona and because of that, our defense was on the field a lot in the first half. Granted, that's because you did have a long sustained drive by the Cardinals, cut at the end by a 100-yard pick six by Xavier Rhodes, and then another semi-long drive by the Cardinals. That effectively takes away a drive by the Vikings, even though we did have points. But even with those, even without that factored in, it was bad. It was lopsided by any account. We looked, especially in the second quarter, we looked flat. It did not bode well offensively. Well, I think part of that is, you know, as we have brought up before, if you're going to find a weakness on our defense, it's it's our ability to stop the run, at least at an elite level. David Johnson, of course, has been playing like an elite-level running back throughout the year, both uh, running the ball but also as a pass-catching back. And with with the score being close and it being in the first half, uh, if you're Arizona, you can run the ball really as many times as you want. There was a drive uh, early on when they were able to run the ball seven out of nine plays. And I believe that was the drive that Xavier Rhodes had his first interception. But David Johnson had over 
55 yards rushing on one drive in and of itself. And that really, really hurts a defense when you can just feed the ball to your monster back and just kill the clock, keep the defense on the field and gassed. And that's something the Vikings have done for years with Adrian Peterson. But it it hurts the defense a lot. And had the Vikings not had that pick six and had not been able to take the lead at halftime, you would have been looking at a long game for the purple and gold. And an interesting statistic, and I don't have the the official numbers, unfortunately, in front of me right now, but uh, I saw a stat that uh, the yards per carry for Johnson and the plays where Johnson broke off longer runs, or the majority of his longer runs against us, were on plays that Linval Joseph was on the sidelines getting a quick breather. So you had Shamir Steffens and Tom Johnson in uh, clogging the, the center of the run. So it tells you how how important Linval is in, in stopping our run defense. And so I guess I wonder, here's my question for you, Quinn. Is there any chance we see Shree Floyd again this ever in a Vikings jersey? And if he does come back, I mean, obviously he, he's he's the epitome of a, of a three-down tackle, right? He, he is. He's good on against both facets of the offense. Do you think that would make a major defense? Uh, difference, excuse me. I think I think it would, but I just don't know that we'd see him back because I think that if Zimmer really wanted to put up with him, he would have forced him to get back here. But I think Zimmer's to the point where every year Floyd has an injury. And every year it seems to take him longer than the original estimate. Whereas you'll have other guys who will do everything that they can to get on the field. So here's a question for you, Carl, that I thought was really interesting when I saw the stats. Who had the longest run on the Cardinals team? Was it A, David Johnson, B, Andre Ellington, or C, Carson Palmer? This feels like a little bit of a trick question. It might be. I don't really remember. I remember a lot of, uh, you know, 8 to 14 yard runs. I don't really remember anything longer. I don't remember Carson breaking off anything. Um, and I feel like I would remember because it would have taken about two minutes off my life for him to him to get that far. Uh, I'm going to go with Johnson. The answer is actually A and C. David Johnson and Carson Palmer each had a long run of 11 yards. It was just 11. It was just 11. And that's something that I thought was very, very interesting was that David Johnson, even though it seemed like every time he got the ball, it was an easy seven-yard gain, his yards per carry average was only 4.7 with a long of 11, meaning he was consistently getting five, six, seven yards with a couple of stops right at the line of scrimmage. But what does that show you? That shows bend, don't break which is, I think, what the Vikings defense has tried to be a lot in this running game this year. Because without Sharif Floyd, that is where their big weakness is. Yeah, and one of the interesting things for the game tomorrow, not to jump ahead a little bit too much, but all signs are pointing to the fact that Terrence Newman will not play. Uh, unfortunately, with a neck injury. And so that means more snaps for Trey Waynes, who we have we have great cornerbacks across the board, but I think he's the best cornerback we have on 
uh, stopping the run. Newman? Uh, Waynes. Waynes. He is physical, although, as we've mentioned multiple times on this show, he does play a ways off the ball, and if he were able to get up and play press coverage, I think he'd be even better on that because he'd be right at the line of scrimmage, closer foot race right to the running back, boom, tackle for a loss. And he's also got great speed, I'd like to say, again. So let's talk a little bit about the defensive line. Uh, What do you think? Is this their best performance of the year, even though it might not be the flashiest? I'd say it was the most clutch performance of the year. It's where they needed a sack desperately to solidify their lead and to get their offense the ball back. They needed that twice, and it happened for them twice. I don't believe they had a sack until the fourth quarter, and in the fourth quarter they had four. In the first three quarters, they were just kind of hurrying Carson Palmer, keeping him off balance, forcing a lot of incompletions, but it wasn't until the fourth quarter that they really stepped up. And I think the fourth quarter was their best quarter of the year. Yeah, and you had a statistic about the the percentage of times that he was hurried on his dropbacks. Um, I believe it was somewhere around 60%. He was hurried, knocked down, hit, or sacked. And it's hard to win a game when your quarterback is under that much pressure, as we've seen with Sam Bradford over the last month. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the, the second time this year, only the second time this year, uh, that we, we've gone over the 50% mark. And the, the other time was against Carolina, which was a truly dominant performance. <laughs> was that eight, like eight sacks? Eight that game? sacks. Which was nuts. But it was interesting. I mean, the defensive line felt dominant the first five weeks of the season, yet uh, we didn't get over that 50% marker. And we really, it was the four-man defensive line that was bringing the pressure. We're not There's not a lot of extra blitzes or anything like that. You barely ever saw them sending Barr, Kendricks, Greenway, or even the nickel blitz that they like to run often. They were saying, okay, we're going to, Arizona was saying, we're going to run three wide, always have five men in the pattern, and we'll say, all right, we'll just rush four. And more often than not, they got to the quarterback. Now, what do you think the longest catch by a wide receiver was in this game? I feel like the longest catch was either um, you know, a medium distance out route to the sidelines or one of the, the catches by Fells, their tight end, over the middle. The longest um, two catches were by the tight ends. They were both over the middle, and the longest one was the 29-yard touchdown. Uh, to which Gresham, was just missed, missed tackles. Which, yeah. But to a wide receiver here, what's the what do you think the longest? Oh. 11 yards. 16 yards, yeah. and it was that freakish one-handed catch by Larry Fitzgerald. Shouts which out. I think we can give a shout-out to Larry Fitzgerald, 1998 ball boy here. So good job, Larry. We love you. Wish you were in purple. That makes two of us. So what do you think uh, contributed to this this big deference in at least points put up by Arizona in the first half versus the second half? I just think once you can get a touchdown by both your defensive unit as well as your special teams unit, that just changes the entire landscape of the game. And you saw that just in time of possession. Arizona in the first half was able to run the ball a lot. 
they were able to run off 40 seconds for each offensive play call. And then once they got to the second half, they were not able to do that because they were down by seven or by 10 points. They needed to be throwing the ball to catch up. And I think it was in the third quarter, they had a net negative yardage for their offense. And that's because you're just not able to run the ball when time just keeps on ticking off the clock when your defense is on the field. Well, and that just doesn't work against our defense. We have that good of a secondary and that good of a front four um, that we're happy to play coverage all day. Yeah, yeah, we'll let you do it. And uh, Stafford or Bradford dropped back 10 fewer times than Carson Palmer and had the same number of completions. He was 20 for 28. Palmer was 20 of 38 and only threw for about 25 fewer yards. So I'd take that. Well, let's talk about the the player of the game. Um, of course, you, you could give the game ball to a number of different players, but I think this week you have to give it to Xavier oh, Rhodes. Oh, no question. No question. Two interceptions and a pick six that turns a touchdown drive into a touchdown for us. A swing of 14 points cannot be Or, or maybe 13. <laughs> or maybe 13. <laughs> no, but that, that was a huge play, and I believe there was a passer rating of zero against him this game. I don't think he there was a completed pass thrown against him this game. I believe. I, I could be wrong here. Um, but when you throw two interceptions like that, it's going to be pretty damn low. Yeah. So, I mean, very, very impressive performance by Xavier Rhodes. Uh, do you have any other comments on the secondary at all? I think uh, we did see some very good play once again out of the safeties that wasn't overly flashy. Sure, they did miss that play late in the sec- or first half against Gresham where he caught that long touchdown. But they, when I mentioned the bend, don't break, they were the last line of defense against that big, fast, physical David Johnson. And they never let him break a big one because there were a lot of plays where had Smith missed a tackle, Johnson had a mile green right ahead of him that would have ended right in the end zone. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big takeaway that they didn't make any mistakes apart from the the Gresham touchdown. They didn't miss any tackles. They didn't make any uh, glaring coverage errors. Um, So uh, definitely props to, to both of the safeties again this week. Uh, I guess the, the only issue on uh, the secondary would be a couple of the penalty calls against Trey Waynes, uh, which looked like they were penalties. They weren't horrible calls to they take, were, but they, they did were on balance. They, 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 they did look valid. Um, but I, he also made some big plays. So, he But did. it is big. I mean, that is kind of been, I mean, that's been our Achilles heel on defense is extending a playing really well and then extending opposing teams' drives because of penalties. Yeah, and anytime you can hold... So Arizona, I believe, last year was the second scoring offense, and they were top three in passing yardage and passing touchdowns. And we held Carson Palmer under 200 yards passing, and we held Arizona to 24 points, which I can live with that. If you can hold an offense like Arizona's to 24 at home, you ought to be able to win, and win we did. So let's get more on to our offensive side of the ball. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the interesting thing on the offensive side of the ball is uh, much more efficient, uh, but there weren't any standout performers on offense across the board, right? Um, there is no standout. I mean, I feel had uh, made a couple nice catches, but you look at his numbers, they're not super impressive. Diggs had a couple catches, quiet game. Patterson likewise, and of course the running backs uh, didn't necessarily put up uh, huge numbers as well. So I guess what, what are your takeaways? I think the offense, the big takeaway is they played the game with only one mistake, and that was Bradford, his sack fumble. Other than that, they played mistake-free football because when he knew to throw it away, he threw it away. The other sack he took... He knew he had to lie down, so he basically lied down for that one. He didn't try to force any throws. Um, we knew when we were able to run and get a couple of yards. Jarek McKinnon didn't have his stupid little dance around, dance around, dance around, four-yard loss. He knew when to take a two-yard gain and when he could stretch something into a five, six, seven-yard gain. So I think it was the absence of stupid mistakes that have really hurt us over the last month. And again, a good good call game from the offensive coordinator. Let's talk a little bit about that turnover because it could have been a much bigger deal than it turned out to be um, because that did, uh, it, that brought the momentum back to Arizona. Um, that's how they got the game uh, back, you know, to, to a one possession game, which gave them a chance. And on top of that, two plays earlier, or it might have even just play. I think there was a penalty in between, but maybe it was even the, just the play earlier mm-hmm. um, is when uh, Bradford had an incomplete pass called, but it was close to being it a fumble. It was very close so to being So you almost fumble. had back-to-back fumbles and back-to-back plays. It was getting deja vu back to our four-game losing streak and uncharacteristic for Bradford because the, the the play, uh, the game had been designed for him to throw the ball quickly. Um, and so it's him holding on to the ball too long and then trying to make some sort of play. And I, I wonder, do you think he just felt um, pressured that we had to extend drives a little bit longer? Or what What, what do you think the reason for, for that small, uh, small error was? Well, I think part of it was Arizona ran a jailbreak blitz. We were still in kind of a max protect uh, offense. And they knew what they had to do to overwhelm our blocking. And it was about third and 10, so it's third and long. So you do need your wide receivers to get to the sticks to get a first down. And Bradford just kind of got blindsided. And granted, it was Clemmings this time. He didn't have any help from our boy Red Ellison because Ellison had his own own blitzer to pick up. So I think it was the fact that he thought he had to hold on just a second more rather than just take the sack, as he should have done. I was just thinking uh, of, <laughs> speaking of just missed pass blocks, and you, you referenced this sack that came earlier in the game where Bradford just kind of laid down, and there's there's been a funny gif circulating of that play, and it comes from Searles' side, and even Rudolph is there to help block, and he doesn't even lay a hand on the end. And Searles somehow manages to... It almost like he he gets back off the line and then turns 180 and just kind of puts his butt up against the defender and the defender just runs right around him. It's, <laughs> it's just it's hilarious. So turnstile. Um, and I, 
you know, you referenced McKinnon a little bit earlier. I think this was uh, a good game. It was a very good game. McKinnon. Statistically, it doesn't look like it. And if you had him on your fantasy team, it was awful. But in terms of being able to hold on to the ball to extend a drive, that's what you need to see to make sure that you're not in second and 12, that you're in second and seven. Because that makes, I've said it before, I'll say it again, a world of difference. Well, let's talk for a moment about uh, the big roster move this week. And that was uh, the Vikings announced that they had cut Ronnie Hillman, who, uh, man, I saw somebody picked him up now and I can't think of it now. But uh, Hillman gone, which means we're only carrying uh, two running backs and a guy called CJ Ham on our, our practice squad. Also uh, Zach Line. Oh, excuse me. Also Zach Line. And of course, your boy Red Ellison, I'm sure if he needed to come in. and He's just an offensive weapon. Man, all those uh, you know zero yard rushes we gave to... Asiad in the last couple weeks we should have been giving those to Rhett you know hey run that tight end reverse on 100% of the times that they've ran it it's been a touchdown numbers don't lie so the cutting of Hillman why now because they they signed a member of the practice squad which I don't think they necessarily uh, needed him for uh, depth or anything like that. Um, and especially since McKinnon has been banged up a little bit throughout the season, do you think it's a sign that they think he's healthy fully now? Or do you think it's a sign that they think Peterson is going to be on the active roster again soon? Or wh- wh- what does your gut tell you? I think there's two possible explanations. The first one being that they brought in Hillman for pass blocking purposes and hoping that he'd be a back who would be good enough to stand in the way of a defensive end. Which he wasn't. Which he really wasn't, but I think that was there was some hope there. Second, I think they do get the feeling that Peterson might be back for the week 14, no, 15 matchup against Green Bay, or 16 matchup against Indianapolis. I have those flipped. It's Indy and then Green Bay. And I, I do think they think Peterson will be back on this roster by the end of the year. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. That'd be very exciting. I would love to see him in purple and gold once again. I mean, just certainly, even though the game was close, a lot lot of optimistic takeaways from this game. I guess, do you have any, any last thoughts, Quinn? I think that, once again, we kind of had the makeshift running game do the job for us where Stefan Diggs had six catches for 37 yards none of them were long passes they were all just kind of the dink and dunk ones Cordero Patterson was very similar where we realized we can't run in an eye formation in between the tackles we've got to be able to make those short passes a run game to be able to control the clock so it's kind of what I have So, as you know, tomorrow, big game on Turkey Day against the Detroit Lions for sole possession of first place in the NFC North. Though the game could end in a tie, uh, which would be be exciting. So, we and you should have seen at least one game of Detroit this year. So, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more in depth than we usually do about that matchup because it's very important. But before we do that, we have to bring you our flag on the play.
So, for those of you turning, tuning in for the first time, flag on the play is something uh, that happens around the NFL or related to football that's funny, stupid, or just makes you say, come on. So, I would like to throw my flag on the play at Fox. It's week 11. Stop photoshopping Sam Bradford's head onto past Vikings quarterbacks. I think we've seen Teddy Bridgewater. I think we've probably seen Matt Castle. Hell, we've probably even seen Christian Ponder at this point. Get a picture of Sam Bradford. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, at first it was Bridgewater, which is just its absurd because they have radically different body types yeah um and you know i mean he also was wearing you know bridgewater wears gloves bradford Bradford does does not wear gloves bradford also looks like the water boy in his uh his choice of shoulder pads and so it looked radically different and then so vikings are complaining it's on social media etc so what do they do no, let's not actually get a real photo. Let's put him on Matt Castle. It, it's crazy. And then did you see the Vikings Twitter after Sam Bradford tossed a touchdown? They photoshopped um, Bradford's head onto Dante Culpepper doing the roll. And boy, did that take me back. Man, to- I got to find that. Man, For those not in the live studio audience, I just did the Dante Culpepper roll off. It was wild. Man, I don't even remember. I remember him doing that for the Eagles. I don't even remember him doing. I don't even remember throwing a touchdown pass to the Vikings. It wasn't a great. It wasn't a great stint. That's for sure. Yeah. So, Carl, what is your flag on the play? My flag on the play is lazy commentating. You've all heard it. We've all heard it. You already know when you're watching your favorite team play, and you've got the national announcers on, and they're making all these lazy comments that make it obvious that they they have absolutely no idea uh, what the strengths, weaknesses uh, of your football team are. And the one that really got me last week listening to the Vikings game, as you know, we had Joe Buck and Troy Aikman on, uh, America's favorite favorite duo. Uh, I can't wait for them to, to have the Super Bowl again in a couple of years. But um, it wasn't even about the Vikings. It was them uh, making a bunch of comments as Dak Prescott was just tearing up Baltimore about, oh, like, huh. Tony Romo's back on the sidelines. Like, well, he won't be there for much longer. Like, oh, just wait for Dak to make a mistake. And they just sounded like like idiots. So um, that got my blood boiling a little bit. So my, my flag on the play goes to, to lazy commentating. My favorite uh, lazy commentating example is in a 2005 game when Frank Gore was a rookie for the 49ers. I think it was Brian Gumble was calling a game. And for the first half... He was calling Frank Gore Al Gore, and he did not realize it. Honest to God. No way. Yeah. And in the second half, he started calling him Frank Gore. He didn't even acknowledge that for the first half, he was calling him the name of a former vice president. And it was, I I do remember seeing it on ESPN's not top 10, number one. Yeah, that is pretty bad. So there you have it. Flag on the play goes to lazy commentating. Stay tuned as we break down the matchup on Turkey Day against the Detroit Lions for the NFC North.
So big matchup, 11.30 Central Time, Ford Field, Turkey, uh, Turkey on the mind, and it's, it's, a, it's a matchup for sole possession of the NFC North. Uh, we don't really like talking about our previous matchup this season against the Lions. Really, really disappointing loss at home. Um, it was back-to-back divisional losses, and it, it always hurts to lose to the Lions, especially when we really outplayed them. And it was on our home turf. On our home turf, and especially our defense until the last dying embers of the game totally dominated the Lions and Matt Stafford. So I think um, I I think we should be able to contain their passing game for the most part, as we've done more or less all year. We just need to make sure that they cannot come out and run the ball on us like Arizona was able to last week early on. We just need to be able to have the clock be our ally rather than our enemy in the first half. And that way we can get to the second half and really be able to put pressure on them. Really be able to dial up those fun Zimmer Zero package blitzes. Yeah, I I definitely second that. It's something that we maybe would have been able to get away with at home, playing at U.S. Bank Stadium, but um, especially playing away from home at Ford Field. Though, I mean, I do feel like they might have one of the worst home field advantages in the NFL. Oh, no doubt. Um, Just to, yeah, I I don't need to trash their stadium or their fan base anymore. Hey, just remember... It was our home field at one time, too. Ah, uh, yeah. Was that uh, 2010? 2010, yeah. 2010, yeah, so yeah. six years ago, Ford Field was purple and gold. Yeah, not uh, not a great memory. But I don't know. I, 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 I'm not super worried about our, our rushing defense in, in this game. No, because they don't really have a big physical runner, and our defense has enough speed to be able to have our linebackers move laterally to get to the ball carrier. It's really the big physical running backs like uh, Rob Kelly for the Redskins or um, David Johnson for the Cardinals that really caused us trouble. Or Zeke Elliott next week. <laughs> but hey, we're, we're, we're that, getting ahead a, of ourselves. That's a ways yeah. off. Um, but the Lions are, all of their running backs are more or less agility speed guys. So... As long as we can keep them from having any unreasonably long plays like, um, was it Riddick had against us early on uh, in the matchup a couple weeks ago? As long as we can keep that bend-don't-break mentality against their run game, I, I think we should be in good shape. Well, this is certainly a huge game. The the, the uh, pundits are calling it uh, one of the most important games of the season. If you depending on which statistical model you like to follow, the uh, whether it be the Upshot at the New York Times or Nate Silver's five thirty eight, uh, each of them, uh, give or take, have uh, the Vikings if they win this game, uh, moving to uh, about eighty percent chance of making the playoffs. Um, but if they lose, it goes down to uh, in the 20s or 30s percents. And that, it flips fairly similarly uh, for the Detroit Lions if they win. So there's a lot riding on this game. That is for sure. Now, I guess the big question is, 
Do you think the Vikings need to put up points on defense and or special teams to win this game? I think the defense and or special teams needs to make a big play, not necessarily put up points. So they need to make a play that the offense can easily capitalize on. So if Sherrill's can start them off at midfield a couple times, or they can have a play like against the Lions earlier where Chad Greenway picked off that pass and returned it about 20 yards. I think that constitutes a big play, but I don't think this is a game where they need to necessarily put up seven points on defense. And Kai Forbath, what do you think are the chances that uh, he goes 100% on his kicks? I'd say 60%. Ooh, that low given the fact that you could be looking at a 45-yarder-plus, and if it's over 40 yards, those are forgivable misses. But I'd really like to see him go 100%. Now, it looks like, uh, you know, it's a short week of practice, but it looks like all but two of our players are going to play tomorrow that were on the injury report. Though the two players that are going, or most likely are going to miss out, will be huge losses. One on each side of the ball. We'll start on the offensive line. It looks like Stefan Diggs is not going to play. How big of a miss is that going to be for the Vikings? Oh, that is a huge, huge miss. He is by far our best route runner on the offensive side, and I think you might see some more stats for Laquan Treadwell because of it. So you might be looking out for number 11 with the absence of number 14. Do you think that limits the the upside of our, our offense? I mean, oh, I think even... absolutely, Especially with how shaky it has been at points this season. Absolutely. That... Diggs is easily Bradford's go-to guy. Even when Patrick Peterson was on him, Bradford wasn't afraid to throw to him. He had back-to-back games where he had 13 catches. With Peterson on him, he had six catches, which is not great, but with Peterson, that's, that's respectable. I Diggs could have drawn their best corner. Now that best corner is going to go on whichever side he's most comfortable with. So I'm not I'm not thrilled about it. Let's put it that way. And then on the defensive side of the ball, we're missing Mr. Reliable. The Aegis wondered, looks like Terrence Newman is going to miss out with a neck injury. Uh, obviously, this, this is not the first time that a cornerback has missed some time in our defense. There's certainly a lot of depth there, but I think this is the first time that Terrence will sit out at least an entire game. What are your thoughts there? This one I'm just not as concerned about because when you lose your best receiver, you fill them in with more Charles Johnson, more Laquan Treadwell, people who aren't close to what he is. Whereas Terrence Newman is maybe an A minus, and you replace him with Trey Waynes, who's a B plus. I'm I'm not happy about it, but it's not something that I'm gonna lose sleep over here. And that's me knocking on wood again um, because I think I, I do have faith in Trey Waynes to be able to play the outside well, but boy, would I like to have seen Newman there too. So what do you think is going to be the difference maker in the game tomorrow? I think it's just going to be who makes the biggest mistake. 
I think these teams are very even, very similarly built. Both of them are more defensive teams. Both have first overall pick quarterbacks, kind of a running back by committee. Um, No real number one receiver, ball spread out. I think it's just going to be who puts the ball on the ground, who has the big kick return, who commits the giant defensive pass interference call. Who's who's it going to be that allows that huge play by having a breakdown in coverage? So I think it's going to come down to one or two plays where one team will just lose it. Yeah, I would I would agree. Uh, to me, I think it comes down to the defensive line and putting pressure on Matt Stafford, uh, either in creating, hopefully creating a turnover. Um, I think that if we come away with a, a positive turnover ratio, we're probably going to win this game. So, I agree with that. So Quinn, prediction, score prediction? Well, I think without Diggs, without Newman, and on a short week of practice going on the road, that does not bode well. Detroit always hangs in a game at home on Thanksgiving, a little more so than the other games of the year. So I'm going to say Detroit 21, Minnesota 17. I think it'll be a pretty similar game to what we saw a couple weeks ago. I think it's going to be similarly low scoring, especially since short week Thursday games are typically low scoring anyways. This has... I think the game, was it a 16-13 win by the Lions last time around? 22-16. 22-16. Because it was a touchdown in overtime. Yeah, I'm going to go 17-13 Vikings. Well, I hope you are right on this one. Well, thank you, Purple Nation, for listening. We wish each and every one of you uh, a great Thanksgiving. Hopefully you have great time with uh, your family and friends people that are important to you and get to celebrate it with a, a purple victory thank you very much for listening see you later